How you get so much favor on your side? Accept the measure, Lord and Savior, I replied. That's your love, that neighbor, not the Thanks for listening to one of the audio messages from Cornerstone Church, Airdrie. My name is Brad, and I'm the lead campus pastor and primary preaching voice here at Cornerstone Church, Airdrie. We believe that the God who spoke so clearly all through the pages of Scripture is still speaking to His kids today. So if it's me who's speaking to you or someone else on this recording, as you listen, we pray that you would know God, know His hope, know His purpose, and know His power. Enjoy the message. Before the ranch, I had horses in the garage. When the Forbes cover was just a mirage. They had me change the statues. If you'd like to follow along in your Bibles this morning, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 6. This week, we're going to take a look at yet another characteristic of who God is, who God is in a, who God is in us or who God is apart from us. We've been looking at these these characteristics of who God is. We've looked at God's goodness and we've looked at God's sovereignty. And we began by looking at this base thought that we need to understand for all of the rest of this to make sense. We began by looking at the, and making sure that we were grounded in the idea that God isn't like us. That when we talk about who God is, we're not talking about just a better person or, or a, a, a more holy person or a more righteous person or just a better version of us. That, that God is not us. He is not like us. And while we were created in his image, we are not like him. We were created with things to, 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 that we can see in us of him, but we were not created as God. We were created in the image of God. And today we're going to take a look at probably the most profound place where we are able to see the distance that exists between us and God. Take a look at the most profound place where we can look at our lives and say, okay, I get it, I am not like God. God is not like us, where we're really confronted and we're forced to see what God is and what we're not. This week, we're going to explore what it means that God is holy. Whatever level of, I think I'm doing okay, I I think I'm a pretty good person, we have inside of us when we are confronted by the holiness of God, we're left undone. That, that however we, we may feel about ourselves, when, when we look and we say, you know, I've got my stuff together. When we are confronted, or when our righteousness is confronted by God's holiness, we are left undone at the, the distance, the difference between us. When we are confronted in our own righteousness and goodness by the absolute holiness and perfection of God, when we are able to see God and instead of us putting God into context, but when we see God and we understand God's holiness, suddenly we are put into context. That that our lives and our goodness, we don't look and we go, see, I can see myself in that. I'm almost there. We're held in stark contrast of, I have a lot further to go than I realized. We don't take God and put him into context. Our lives, our holiness, and our righteousness is put into context. We realize that our righteousness and God's holiness are are not maybe as comparable as at times we can fall into the trap of believing. 
that, that we can look at our own lives and I'm doing okay. You know, I'm doing, I don't sin big. I sin little. And, and really, I don't even think I sin all that often. You know, me and God, we're not that different. That we can fall into this trap of believing in our own self-righteousness. That, uh, you know, whether I've served God for a long time or a little bit, you know, God's really been changing me and making me more like him. And I think he's almost there. And sometimes we can, we can fall into that. There's this moment that I want to show you in Luke chapter 5. Jesus has begun, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6, but we're going to just take a look at one verse in Luke chapter 5. Jesus has been calling his disciples, and he comes to what in Luke chapter 5 is called the Lake of Gesenaret, which is also known as the Sea of Galilee. They're, they're interchangeable names for the same thing, in case that was confusing for you. But there are, on the, there's, there are these boats on the side of the water. There's these boats, and Jesus steps out into one, and he begins to preach. And then when he's done preaching, we don't know what he said. We, it just says that when he was finished, Jesus tells the guys who owned the boats to, to go out into the water and, and, and fish and put their nets down here. And initially the guys object saying that they have been at this all night and they've caught nothing. They may not be trusting in their own self-righteousness, but they're trusting in their own self-confidence. They, 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 look, I don't know who you are and you don't know who I am, but I'm a professional. So I know you think I should go put my net out, but you can trust me on this one. I've done the legwork. There's no fish to be caught today. They're not maybe saying, I, I'm tr I know that I'm, I'm righteous, but I know I am a fisherman. And they're trusting in themselves. But eventually, they listen and they head out. And of course, as they listen to Jesus, it says they caught more fish than they were able to handle. That even their own self-righteous fishermanness was not just kind of off. They weren't left going, oh, yeah, I guess you know, two or three fish, we caught it. I guess he was sort of right. They're confronted with the, the knowledge and this understanding that in their own self-understanding, they could not have been more wrong. It says that their nets start, start to tear because there's so many fish. And as they make their way back to the shore, one of the guys, a man named Simon, who would go on to become Peter, says that he goes over to Jesus and he falls down at his feet. And this is what happens. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, it says, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. The presence of Jesus, the holiness of God, causes Peter to understand in that moment who was and or who he was and what he was. In this moment, the presence of Jesus causes Peter to see and understand himself in a certain way. He doesn't come to Jesus. We don't know what Jesus preached about, but we know that Jesus confronted Peter in his ability to fish. And Peter doesn't come back and say, go away from me, Lord, I'm a bad fisherman. But the presence of Jesus causes Peter to, to have this realization, to have this understanding of who and what he was. And he says, go away from me, Jesus. I'm a sinful man. 
the presence of the holiness of God caused Peter to be confronted with who and what he was. And in that moment, he realizes this is what holiness looks like. And it's not this. I can't be with this. When you would hang out with Jesus, his speech was pure, his motives were pure, his love was pure. And whatever happened to him, he dealt with everything with the absolute perfect and complete standard. And as you as a person were in the presence of holiness, you were suddenly confronted with the truth that our righteousness and God's holiness do not connect. They don't come together. Now, I would wager... I, the scripture doesn't make this clear, but I would anticipate that this is the same experience, the same experience that causes Peter to fall to his knees at Jesus' feet is at least part of the reason why seemingly right out of the gate, the religious leaders at the time wanted to kill Jesus. That when they were confronted with the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus, you know, the, 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 the Pharisees' response to Jesus doesn't particularly grow over time. It's not that they start out mildly frustrated with him, kind of irritated by this guy, but whatever. They want to kill him pretty quick. And my anticipation, my thought, is that the same sense that Peter had when confronted with the holiness of God that caused him to fall to his knees and say, oh Lord, I'm a sinner. These religious types, the religious leaders, the ones who were supposed to have it all together, they were confronted with the same holiness. But their response wasn't, oh Lord, I'm a sinner. Their response was, I don't like this feeling. Every time I'm around this guy, I have these feelings inside of me, and I don't like this. Let's kill him. That their, their response, it comes, from the, I, it comes from the same place, the same sense of, of there's something that's going on, and they, they chose not to fall down at Jesus' feet and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And have Jesus work in them. They chose to resist and to push back. And so here's where I want to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Because what we're going to discover as we look at Isaiah chapter 6. And if you would, if you would choose to look at so many other places in the Old Testament and in the New there is this pattern that happens when people are confronted by God. We see it. We saw it in Peter. We're going to see it in Isaiah. You can see it in other places all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. This pattern of what happens when we're confronted with the reality of God's holiness. The context of Isaiah chapter 6 is that the king has died. His name is, is Isaiah. The nation is in free fall. Things are happening. And Isaiah goes to the temple... And he meets with God. And in this moment, Isaiah discovers that he's in the presence of a holy God. It says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled 
the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their face. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah has this incredible encounter of the presence of God. And he has this upward look at what it means to come into the presence of God. That Isaiah has this moment, the same one that Peter has, where he's encountering God and encountering the holiness. And when he has this moment in the presence of God, it causes Isaiah to understand something about himself. Now what you need to know is that Isaiah was probably one of the most righteous, the most holy, the most godly men of his day. But after a moment in the presence of God, Isaiah understands. And he says this in verse 5, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah is confronted by the holiness of God. And he's left realizing that even if people would regard you as the most righteous, the most holy, the most godly person, you're still not God. And the distance between you and God is so great that as in the moment you're confronted with it, you're undone. Woe is me. I am undone. I'm, I'm ruined. That this is what happens when Isaiah gets a glimpse of God and a glimpse of his holiness. When we look at our own lives, when we look at who we are and the lives that we live and the decisions that we make, we all have a tendency to grade ourselves on a curve. We, we look for and we look at people who, who are a little less holy, maybe a little less loving, maybe a little less than whatever we're judging ourselves on. And we say, well, at least I'm not like that. At least I'm, I'm not like them. Like, Jesus, if you're going to compare me to that, I'm looking all right. You know, if, if you're going to take a look at me and then take a look at this mess over here, suddenly I don't look so bad. And, and we, we do that. We, we have, we, we, as people, we have a tendency to, to do that, to look for people that cause us to feel better about ourselves, that cause us to look better. And we can fall into a trap of believing that God might do this as well. That maybe when God looks at my righteousness and looks at the way I live and looks at the things I do, he's probably a little impressed. Probably like, yeah, Brad, you're not perfect, but you're doing great. As much as one of you can be, you're in the top couple percent. But this is the heart that Jesus is getting at when he tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. When the tax collector prays, he says, I thank you, God, 
that I'm not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. And I'm certainly not like the tax collectors. I fast twice a week. And I give you a tenth of my income. The Pharisee says, thank you, God, that I'm not a normal Christian. I fast and I tithe. The two things no one wants to do. And I do them. That's how you know I'm a good Christian. Because I do the things that I don't even want to do. As if somehow the righteousness that we're able to have in our own lives, in our own strength, is, is going to make God stand up and say, you know, I thought I knew people, but I never counted on you. I never counted on them. Wow! But the reality is that when we meet the holy God of Scripture, we discover that God has no curve. That we may grade ourselves on the curve. We may look at other people and pick out the worst characteristics of everybody else and say, I'm better than that. But with God, he doesn't do that. He does not grade us on a curve. And the standard is unmistakable, unapproachable, absolute perfection. And when we get a glimpse of that God, we're, we are only left with the realization that our righteousness and our goodness are nothing when confronted with God's holiness. And in fact, Paul will say, this is what should happen in the lives of people and in the lives of people as they come to church and they come into the presence of God. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul will say, if a, but if a man who is not a Christian comes to your church meeting while you are all speaking God's word, he will understand that he is a sinner by what he hears and he will know that he is guilty and the secrets of his heart will be brought into the open and he will get on his knees and worship God and he will say, for sure God is here with you. Guilt. It's what we want. We want people to come into church and just be like, oh, this is, no. No. It's not guilt. It's not shame that we want. We don't want people to come into church and feel like, oh, I am the worst person here. We don't rejoice in that. We don't say, good, that's what we wanted. That, that's what we need. We need more shame. We need, we need more of that. That's not it. No, as they enter into the presence of God, they have the exact same experience that Peter has. They have the exact same experience that Isaiah has. That they look and they see the presence of God and they understand who God is. And in that moment, they realize, I need God. That when we're confronted with our own lives, we're not left feeling like, eh, God, not, either way. And we come into the presence of God, and in this moment, we become aware, woe to me, I'm undone. When someone who doesn't know God walks into our church and the presence of God is here, they will become confronted by that presence and God's holiness, and they'll be forced to confront their own failings and shortcomings, and they will know that they are not what they need to be or what they may have thought that they were. But that's not where the story ends for Peter. That in this moment where, where Peter says to Jesus, depart from me, Jesus doesn't say, okay. 
For Isaiah, when, when he says, I'm undone and I, I cannot, this is, this is too much for me. Isaiah is a long book and he's in all of it. That this is just the beginning of their stories. That they're confronted by the holiness of God. But that's not, the word from God is not just failure, sinner, death. That we have to come to that moment where we realize without God, we're nothing. But that's not where he leaves us. That's not what he did with Peter. That's not what he did with Isaiah. That's not what he does with his creation. We are confronted by the fact that we are not holy and God is. But then we see what happens next in Isaiah chapter 6. In verse 6 it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Remember, Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live with a people of unclean lips. And so they, it touches his lips and it says, Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. There's this moment where Isaiah is undone by the presence of God. By the holiness of God. And he looks at his life and he's suddenly confronted by everything that I thought that maybe I could be. I'm none of it. I'm not. Whether I'm the most righteous, holy person around or not. I am not God, and I can't even be in the presence of God. But God makes a way for him to be there. In the face of Isaiah's shortcomings, in the face of a sudden deep realization of his, his unholiness, he's not pushed away from God. But instead, the seraphim comes and takes a piece of coal and touches his lips with it, cleansing it. And Isaiah is told that God has made allowance, made a way for Isaiah in his unholy state for him to be in the presence of a holy God and to be used by him. He says, your guilt has been taken away and your sin has been atoned for. That means that the, the sin in your life, it's been covered over. And it's a picture of what Jesus is going to do. In his atonement, in his death on the cross for you, in your place, paying for your sin, so that you, we, me, the sin in our lives can be covered over, and not in our righteousness, but in God's holiness, we're made right with God. And we see that in the next verses of Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has seen himself for who he really was, not somehow based on his own righteousness, but even in that how far away he still was. And Isaiah sees who God has made him into. He, he looks upward and he sees God's holiness. And he, then he's forced to look inward and see his own unholiness. And then there's this moment where God gives him this new identity. And we read in verse 8, I'm sure I forgot to put this up there, I did. But in verse 8 it says... Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Whom shall go for us? And I said, Woe to me, I am undone. No. Isaiah, he's looked upward. 
and he's seen God's holiness. He's looked inward, and it's caused him to see his unholiness. But God has made a way, and now he's looking outward, and he sees his new identity. And this man who moments ago was undone, unable to be in the presence of God, when God says, who am I going to send? Who's going to work in me and through me? Who's going to be that person? Isaiah says, me. I will do it. He's undone by God's unholiness. Or sorry, by his unholiness and God's holiness. But yet, God makes a way for him not to be left there. But for him to be able to say, even in my unrighteousness, I can still be used by God. I can still be used by him. Isaiah goes from woe is me to here I am, from I am in trouble to I am in good hands, from I am no good to I am made right. And the same thing is available to us today. In his letter to Titus, Paul will say that before we came into a saving relationship with Jesus, we were a people whose lives were, were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's who we were. We are unclean. We are unholy. We come into the presence of God and we don't have a leg to stand on. This, this is what we are. But then it says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us, in, in our righteousness, we didn't get there. We didn't make it. We didn't achieve it. We don't look and go, pretty good, God. We were all of those things. And yet, because of God's goodness and his kindness, he saved us, not because of our righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, eternal life. The Holy Spirit washes us and regenerates us and renews us and he works on us. He takes that coal and he touches our lips that we're saying, it's un I have unclean lips and he makes them clean. And when we accept Jesus and the Holy Spirit begins to work on us and work on our heart, we go from a people who are decidedly not holy and the Holy Spirit takes these foolish, disobedient, hateful lives and changes them. And instead of this unholy, evil people, we get verse 7 of Titus 3 that says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Is there an amen available in the church for that? That this is our testimony. We were. We did nothing to not. And yet... We're made heirs of eternal life. We're made heirs to the kingdom of heaven. We are made heirs to God. You see, the holiness of God and our sin is a total barrier between us and God that we cannot cross. It doesn't matter how good you feel about yourself. You cannot cross it. But God can. We cannot get to God. But in the cross of Christ, God made a way for the barrier of our sin to be bridged to his holiness. Not because of our righteousness, but because of God's goodness and mercy. 
God's holiness confronts us with the failings in our lives. The relationship that you have. The things that you're viewing on the internet. The shows that you're watching. The kind of friends you're choosing. Your materialism. Your focus and priority on work. The things in your life that are not the way that they should be. When we look at God's holiness, this is what we're confronted with. And we're left without excuse. All of our justification, all of our... It falls by the wayside when we realize, God, (laughs) what am I going to say to you? You're perfect. But God's holiness doesn't leave us there. It doesn't just point out all of the things that are wrong and then say, no, figure it out. He doesn't just point out your feelings and wait for you to clean them up. God knows you need cleaning. And so we read that God washes us, renewing and regenerating us with the Holy Spirit. So we're not left in our guilt and our shame. We're not left with our failings and our shortcomings. But instead, we're brought over that barrier and we're made right with God. I want to close this morning by by reading you a passage from Colossians chapter 1, from the Passion Translation, that gives us the final picture for this morning of this incredible picture that God has given us. It says this, Even though you were once distant from God, living in the shadows of your evil thoughts and actions, he reconnected you back to himself. He released his supernatural peace to you through through the sacrifice of his own body as the sin payment on your behalf so that you would dwell in his presence. And then... If there's one thing that I want you to take away this morning is it's this next bit. And so would you even just prepare your heart for what God wants to say to you here? It says, And now there is nothing between you and Father God. For he sees you as holy, flawless, and restored. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief and where I doubt. Thanks again for listening to one of the audio messages from Cornerstone Church Airdrie. I pray that you were blessed by what God had to say in this message. If you would like to connect further with Cornerstone Church, there are a couple places you can go. First is our website, cornerstonefoursquarechurch.com, and select the Airdrie campus. And some of the best ways to connect with us is through our social media channels. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstoneairdrie. Follow us on Twitter at csairdrie. And on Instagram at cornerstoneairdrie. If you'd like to connect with the pastoral team at Cornerstone, you can do that again through our website, cornerstonefoursquarechurch.com. Click on the Airdrie campus. Then click on the About Us on the main menu. And then one last click on Our Campus Pastors. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and get new messages delivered directly to you. We are so thankful to be able to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with our community in Airdrie and with you today. At Cornerstone Church Airdrie, we are a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. And that family includes you. We follow Jesus together as family we go. I've been adopted by your blood, so I am your own. All my fears are lost in perfect love.